Hi, and welcome back to Within and Without podcast series, a collaboration between radical adventure writers and Raok. I am Rio Oshas of Raok, Race, Ancestors, Health, Outdoors, Knowledge, and I'm thrilled to introduce episode three, Writing on Turtle Island. One thing to note about the people who interviewed for this episode is a wide range of experience and relationship to cycling, whether they are new or seasoned riders or ride professionally for fun or bikes are their transportation tool. All the interviewees speak about how riding a bike is a way to connect with the land and honor the people of the land. It is about remembering that these lands are beautiful because of the work and stewardship by local native people in the past and today. The dominant narrative of biking is often rooted in conquering and consumption of exploration and experience. Yet these writers ask us to reflect deeply on creating connection and consciousness of our body, our own ancestry, to the very land and native flora and fauna and the people whose lands we are traveling through. In this episode, in the following order, we will hear from Renee Hutchins, one of the new organizers of the Radical Adventure Writers, Christina Torres from Ciclista Scene, Jesse Harris, an outdoor enthusiast and graduate student for urban planning in USC, co-founder of Bikepacking Roots, Kate Boyle, Tesla La Tierra, a community bike educator mechanic of Cycles of Change, Celia Denton, a cultural foods protector, Ali Ramon, a musician, mother and co-owner of Raok, and writer and nurse, Marianne Thomas. Each of these powerful storytellers tell us about how bikes can be that very tool to be mindful and one with the earth, each other, and the locals people. That is whether we are traveling in local neighborhoods or in remote outdoors. Hi, my name is Renee Hutchins, and I am a member of the Diné Navajo Nation. I am currently residing on the ancestral and contemporary homelands of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho people. When it comes to mountain biking, I can't say there's a role model in terms of Native people that are out there, like in media, uh, public-facing, you know, figures, uh, and that's that's why I love using my voice and sharing my story. I want others to know that there are indigenous cyclists out there. So for me growing up, I would, I would say, you know, I've always been on the land, experiencing the land in so many ways. And one of those was cycling. Well, I spent time growing up both in Oklahoma and Northern Arizona on the Navajo reservation uh, near Kayenta Four Corners area. Commonly people know that area as Monument Valley. And I have uh, there's four siblings in my family, and so my my brother is the oldest, and him being the oldest, you just want to follow, you know, the older sibling around and do what he's doing, and so he had a big influence on my outdoor time. We, you know, we had about 10 acres of land, and we had this really long driveway. It was a dirt driveway, and when it rained, it would divot down into these mud holes, but then they dry out, and so we used these to do wheelies out of and put together, like, really sketchy uh, ramps out of uh, compressed, you know, wood. And so he was like a big influence for me as far as just getting out and play, just playing, you know, it's such a, a joy 
to spend time with, you know, family and friends, you know, as a kid. And uh, I was had these those little huffy bikes with the banana seat. <laughs> that was kind of what I used. It was just like whatever had two wheels, you know, I was on it and I was going to be following my brother around uh, on his adventures. So for me, you know, my grandparents, I'll start with my grandpa, you know, he's, he's someone who I look, look up to a lot and is an elder and holds so much knowledge and stories. And so he was a tour guide uh, for, for a long time. And I would always want to join him on those tours. Uh, we'd, I'd wake up really early and and sometimes they were half day or sometimes they would be full days. But my grandpa always spoke in stories. He feels like that was so much part of our relationship. And this connects to mountain biking for me because when I'm on the land, I hear his stories. I hear stories related to place. And what's so cool is that when you're in different areas, the place to me elicits those stories that are that are related specifically to that area. I I I feel like today, like I use my voice in the way of storing around the land, and not only in the places I ride, but my own experience and how that relates to my cultural cultural traditions, and that definitely ties back to my grandpa. I would do more listening than talking. You know, it's like I could tell he was, you know, hearing those stories. And he would just break into a story about, you know, anything and everything. It didn't have to be related to the present. It could be the past or the future. And um, for me, that was such a comfort because I never felt alone. I never feel alone when I'm on the land, you know, and people say, hey, I'm going for a solo ride, you know, but for me, I never really feel like it's a solo ride. There may not be any people around, but I'm definitely surrounded by so much uh, stories and voice in the land. The reason why I mentioned public lands is because, you know, there's often a lot of campaigning is merely attached to politics. You know, you can take the the bear's ears example. You know, I'll pick on Patagonia because I've picked on them before and they know that. You know, there was a campaign that came out, you know, that said the president stole your lands. And that made a, a wave among Native people because it completely erased the fact that it was actually stolen prior. I mean, it was, you know, it was stolen from Native peoples, you know. And so, again, there's that eraser of just completely brushing over that fact altogether. And public lands is constantly in legislation in the sense that there's hashtags, you know, vote outdoors, you know, or keep spaces wild or keep it public. I mean, there's so many hashtags surrounding this. So it, it very much is tied, the, you know, the lands and that conversation is very much directly tied to uh, politics and the, how you see politics um, and power and space all converge. And, and I would say even indigenous people, because although we're forgotten, oftentimes not in those conversations, like we consider ourselves as part of those spaces or places that, that are often brought into the political realm and, you know, I tell people often that I'm not, it's not about getting rid of the word public lands. It's, it's in legislation. It's going to be around for quite some time. But I would, I do feel like it's hard not to get involved in 
advocating for public lands and in that notion of what public lands is in the broader scheme of how it's written about in policy. You know, you think of the uh, the Great American Outdoors Act that passed over the summer. It's it's everywhere, you know, in terms of where it's talked about, and it hasn't historically in, involved or you know Native people in general. And that's what I that's what I'm I want to remind others is that public lands has just gone on to be these very white centric agendas. And what what I feel like is problematic is when there's stories of Native people that are uh, co-opted, uh, you see co-opted narratives in uh, traditional knowledge or even stories related to our sacred places. And then they're thrown in a film or they're thrown in a some kind of campaign to tokenize our fight for the land. It has very traumatizing a lot of times around National Public Lands Day because a lot of these conversations happen and it's a lot of non-indigenous people that are saying this is this is everyone's land you know it, it's my land it's it, and that's just not it's not correct <laughs> it's just not and so oftentimes I say that public lands are native lands and that's my way to remind others that there's a much larger and unforgotten and untold stories uh, around public lands, including national parks. Please, when you see legislation or when you hear these conversations, ask yourself, where are indigenous people? Are they in the political language? You know, are we written in there in a way of co-management of these spaces? And much of the time the answer is no. Follow indigenous voices and, and people who are who are advocating, who are writing about this, uh, who are physically showing up in these spaces that are defending. Uh, you know, you can think of the uh, pipeline issue several years ago. You can think of Mount Rushmore. The people there, you know, they're defending their sacred uh, land, and so there's there's countless examples across the United States, even up into Canada. I want others to to understand why we advocate. Why is the land so important to us? You know, you've seen this hashtag or campaign messages floating around called Land Back with Native people. And it directly exposes the fact that Indigenous sovereignty is completely, you know, negated. It's just overthrown, not recognized, I mean, however you want to put it. And it's something that I realize many people don't realize that indigenous people have special rights. You know, we're written into the law of our, our, our nation in terms of having indigenous sovereignty and protecting our, our rivers, our, our water, our land, our air. Right now it's very piecemeal, like how legislation impacts native people. You know, there's plenty of books and resources to, to look at uh, tribal uh, nations and the laws, you know, so that's, that's one factor that I feel like I have to educate often is that there's just not the awareness that we have inherent rights as indigenous people in our country. And those are not even being upheld. You know, why is it that native people are still being arrested on our, our lands to protect sacred places, to have ceremony, uh, for example. So 
following our voices, you're going to get a sense that it's, it's more than saying we want all our physical land, just in the physical sense, we want it back. It's the fact that we need to be at the table and we need to be a part of that co-management of that space. And we're not, we're not there yet. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of reasons behind that, but you know, that's, that's something that I want people to understand in terms of, you know, how to understand indigenous people's fight for the land. A lot of times in the generic history of indigenous people in our, in our country, there's this broad brushstroke of, you know, how we've been impacted by colonization, um, looking at cultural assimilation and all those periods, the termination policies that took place by our country that literally aimed to physically kill and remove native people. And when that wasn't successful, then we went to cultural assimilation and the boarding, you have the boarding schools era and, and so on and so on. But a lot of times people forget that there's hundreds and hundreds of tribal nations that are, we all have our own distinct cultures and, and languages, you do have to take an interest or have to take an extra step to realize that um, there are large causes that Indigenous people will, will come together and collectively fight and protect our land and, and advocate for our seat at the table. But then there's also those very nuanced scenarios where it's, you know, tribal-based, you know, in that location or it's related to that river, you know, particularly for that tribe. So, that's why I try to take the land acknowledgement conversations a, a lot further as, as a way of like a foundation. And I really want people to crest, you know, progress beyond that because what are they fighting for? You know, what, what are they, what is most concerned to them or who are they? Who, who are these people today? You know, ask yourself that and, and take an interest in beyond just saying, this is, you know, I'm acknowledging these people of this land. Like where can you, where can we partner together, you know, at the community level with, with native people. And that means taking an action beyond just acknowledging that these lands were, um, that these people live in these places uh, beyond just a land acknowledgement. I find myself, even though I'm in a completely different area, far away from my sacred mountains, that I feel and relate to the power of the land just the same, uh, even if I'm not in my, you know, not the Navajo homelands. And I find that awesome. <laughs> found that really amazing to, to feel that. It's very special. And I take an interest because it's, it's how I relate to my own homelands, but I somehow make this bridge to other spaces in a way that uh, even as an Indigenous person, I love you know, diving into those stories that are related to that place and those people, the indigenous people to that um, area. And I feel the, the, the spirit of those places uh, very much. Uh, I see different peaks or mountains and I'll look out and across the way and, and have this, just I'm humbled, you know, and, and I honor those mountains, the plant, and animal nations around me uh, it transcends just my own uh, tribal, you know, focus and, and like the Navajo Nation. Just in the time that I've been speaking about land acknowledgement and what does it mean uh, as cyclists that I've had 
non-Indigenous people send me messages that, you know, I really treasure that because they're like, I've ne I'll never think of that place the same. I'll never see roots the same or, uh, you know, I can tell that they're, they're forever, they're, you know, really truly impacted by, you know, just hearing another perspective and how we relate to the land. And so that's, that's what I want people to, to try to open their, you know, open their hearts and open their minds to. When I wrote that article in, in Bike Mag a little while back, I, I remember working with the editor and, and this person wanted me to be very specific. What is it, what is it like, Renee, to exist in this mountain bike industry as an indigenous person? And that was a hard one to swallow because there's a lot of trauma related to that. I see huge problems with cultural appropriation because it is stealing traditional knowledge via art and patterns and stories. It's not just a pretty design to slap on a glove. There's companies that I've reached out to, you know, like hand up gloves with their Navajo design that they put on their mountain bike glove. Uh, fender, you have fenders, you have all sorts of accessories with bikes that are just, I mean, you look everywhere. I can't, it's just overwhelming. Uh, so that's cultural appropriation. And then you have uh, stories uh, in general. We can talk about route names in, bike in the bikepacking world. Uh, we can talk about race event names that are problematic. There's many examples of indigenous erasure happen. And it's hard to remind people because I feel like a broken record sometimes. What I love about the sport is how it connects me to place and people simultaneously. I've met some amazing people along my journey that have been a support to me and to the, to the greater indigenous communities. And for me, joy is sacred. You know, it's something that's always part of the, the land and it very much uh, has the concept of healing related to that as well. And so the, the joy is, is something that is, comes from the people and the places that I connect with. And that is, that, that fills me for sure, that that joy is something that really contributes to our, the long haul of the future. So my name is Christina Torres. I go by she, her, Aya. Um, I am Kawaisi Soshone Paiute descendant of Tejon Reservation and Mexican-American. I am talking to you from Wappinger territory um, in New York, um, so-called Hudson Valley. I got into cycling as an economic necessity I was living in San Francisco, I was going to UC Berkeley, and the trains were increasing their prices. And I think for a student who's also working part-time, it was still unaffordable. And getting a bike was, you know, a good way for me to say, you know, this is actually more affordable um, and more accessible. Um, if anyone inspired me to get outdoors oh gosh 
Mel Melly is was also based in San Francisco, and she was the first person I had found um, online who was talking about her experience of cycling in the city. And she was also Mexican American, and that was to me like, wow, there's someone else out here who's talking about their experience um, being a woman, you know, cycling as well. So cycling even kind of influenced the um, what I studied in college. So I studied sustainable urban development. You know, how do we mobilize people to get access to sustainable transit? So that brings in things like mobility justice as well, but also, you know, transportation for climate. So that's, that absolutely did inspire a lot of um, what I was researching in school, but also inspired a lot of the work I do with Ciclista because I'm doing more mountain biking at the moment and I'm going to places I've never been. So I have to put some research into the terrain, into the parks, you know, what are the rules, you know, what do I have to pay? Or is there a cultural center that I can go pay my respects to? Like how much time am I going to be spending like in these places and what gifts do I need to bring? And it's obviously the spirit that you take with you or offerings to the land in, in some way. So one thing I do is I carry a medicine bag with me when I go cycling and I'll stop for a little bit and I'll just sprinkle a little bit of stuff on the ground and say, thank you. Um, but also just having the things I, I, I need and also acknowledging who is there before me. I think right now I live in rural New York. Um, we're a very small community. When I noticed that, um, you know, obviously we can't go traveling to other countries right now. A lot of people are taking holidays in parks around here. We we have loads of parks where we live. It's amazing like how incredibly busy those places become where like locals, we, we can't go out and enjoy them, especially during COVID. Um, so a lot of our spaces that we, we would go to, to kind of just go out and enjoy, like we can't do that any, anymore as much as we want because we know so many folks are coming in from the city and they should be doing that. We have this 24 <laughs> seven. So it's, it's nice. We have that. But I think when even I go outside of my area, being mindful, you know, of um, the amount of space I take, you know, whether on the trail are in a parking lot, being mindful in the sense of that there's going to be cultural differences also in how people recreate. The mentality around certain spaces of cycling is just getting there as fast as we can. And that actually comes with the cost of disrespecting other people's spaces because you have people who are new, you know, you have new cyclists, especially on the trails. You have new cyclists, you have young cyclists, you have disabled, you know, cyclists out there too. And I think that when you have people that you're sharing spaces with who, who don't really respect your space as well, I think people can get really discouraged. 
by that. So when we're good relatives to each other, we're also good relatives to the land. We're in a huge bike boom. And I think that, you know, we really have to be aware of how we are taking up space in the outdoors right now. I mean, we have to share, we're all part of the land in some way, but we need to be good relatives. There's definitely a need to acknowledge the fact that naming places more specifically is deeply rooted in colonialism. And we need to confront the fact that because colonization and the whole idea of you know manifest destiny, etc., the fact that we think we have a right to name things or to appropriate things or to take um, is problematic in, in nature. So we definitely need to confront the need to name places. I think when we talk about the dynamics and shifting when naming or renaming is introduced, I think we need to include those who have originally been stewards of those places. I, I won't say the full name. I'll call it DK. Um, it happens in Emporia, Kansas. That name has always kind of sat with me weirdly since I started knowing about these gravel races. So in Native culture that you, you know, some of us grew up very close to our tribes, you know, we are taught a different history. Um, we're actually told that there are 26 states that derive from um, Native tribes, Kansa being one of them. So knowing that has always kind of felt really uncomfortable, knowing the his how the history of the word dirty was used towards Indigenous people. My people were also called dirty, which also validated, you know, the colonizers um, need to take and et cetera, et cetera. And um, that always kind of sat with me very oddly. And just like, don't they know? <laughs> You've got to know. That's not like an English name. And I understand they say, oh, you know, the intention, the intent wasn't to, you know, have a racist, you know, anti-Indigenous event name. But to the people who hear, who are of Kansa, to them, it's extremely offensive. So I started this petition just to raise awareness, basically around the name and the problematic nature of it. But that got quickly shut down, especially by the race organizers. Um, they put out a very odd statement saying they had support from, you know, consonation. And I, I put quotes around consonation. I had gotten a contact from a few Kansa members who had basically broken down the entire story of how this race was offensive, how they've been trying to change it for a few years now. And there was petitions before mine. There were letters, there were conversations, there were books exchanged, um, emails exchanged. It was never acknowledged. It was never 
really, well, I'm really sorry and we will change it. It was just, well, that's not the intent of this name. Um, but the fact that they got support from the nation was another thing. Um, the people, the kinds of people that I've been working with, they don't like it. <laughs> Nobody in their tribe likes it. And they did not get to vote on, on the name being used. This is all very much behind doors. They didn't think that people would find out. They didn't think that it would be a problem. There was a lot of backlash on the internet, which is, is one thing, but there's, you know, the people who are actually affected by this. Those are the people we actually have to care about. I've been, you know, working with them for months. You know, we talk weekly. We are like a family now and, you know, I have aunties I call now and um, we are still trying to, you know, still working on getting this name changed. They did say that they were going to change it, but materially that has not happened. So we still have a petition um, going up um, on change.org, name the change is our, um, is our campaign name. When it comes to indigenous issues, people have a very hard time undoing their own colonization. Like, and I say that from like a very American education perspective, they have a very hard time undoing everything that they've learned. And that could be very troubling for some folks because some people want to hold on to the this heritage this like american heritage and things behind it and um and preservation of that and i think that when you continue to force the new mode of knowing i, I think you continue the process of indigenous erasure so we we do need to be accountable to the words that we say. We do need to be accountable to the people we say it to and how we use our words. One thing that I talk a lot about is building consent with indigenous people, for example, whether you're advocating for the environment, whether you're you know, wanting to use parts of your land for recreational use, you have to build consent. But you also have to build consent with the land because the land has its own ways of being and knowing. One thing I would love to see this industry do, whether that's events or resorts or um, panels, etc., I would like to see one more acknowledgement, land-based acknowledgement, also inviting the original stewards um, to your events, inviting them to be part of certain things, asking them for permission, but also being in a reciprocal relationship, being in a relationship where you are mutually benefiting one another because we share the land, right? We both have a duty to take care of the land. When we visit places like parks, for example, there are sacred sites that still exist on those places and a lot of those places get desecrated they lose their preservation right and you know as folks from the land those lands you know when we go back to visit you know those places have deep meaning to us because those are special places um where we communicate with spirits etc i think you know it also 
impacts our ability to go to these sacred sites as well, or our ability to steward the land, whether that's removing brush, whether that's, you know, cleaning certain areas, but a lot of garbage gets left behind, especially around like 4th of July or um, other holidays where, you know, being out in these places, you know, is popular. But I specifically think about reservations that are very near these parks, for example, and just the aftermath of the mess that and they end up having to clean, especially in a time of COVID. Access to resources and health services are so scarce and we're, we're being impacted by COVID so disproportionately that it's really important and to be thoughtful and to, you know, be very aware of how we are taking space on the land. Uh, my name is Jesse Harris. Uh, any pronouns are fine. Um, and I am currently based in uh, West Hollywood out in LA, um, which is uh, Tongva and, and Chumash land. I felt inspired to get into biking, you know, at a very, very early age. I remember actually my very first gnarly cycling fall <laughs> was when I was three and I had a little plastic tricycle. We lived out in, uh, in the country and our, our driveway was made of uh, like gravel and, and rock. So it wasn't paved. And I was riding my bicycle around our driveway and I, uh, my, my tricycle flipped over a rock and I busted my chin on that rock. And it was really a tight, a small, I mean, it bled a lot because face, facial injuries bleed a lot. And I cried a lot because I was three. Um, and my dad came outside and scooped me out of the driveway and threw me in the car and drove to the emergency room. And he actually, he happened to be a doctor. So a lot of the nurses knew him there. And my dad was crying because, <laughs> because I had gotten hurt. And, uh, and uh, at the emergency room, the nurse is like, you know, they put like one stitch in my chin because that's all the injury warranted and gave me a lollipop and I sucked on the lollipop and I fell asleep in the car on the way home. And my dad was still crying like the whole rest of the day because, because his baby had gotten hurt, which I always think is really, um, is really precious. Um, but we used to ride bikes together, my dad and I, a lot growing up. I mean, he, we, everyone in the family had a bike, but he and I were definitely the ones that were more um, adventurous and more like athletically inclined. So um, that's an activity we did a lot together. Um, and then he passed away when I was 13 and my mom became a single parent. And so I relied on the bike and public transportation a lot to get around. It wasn't until I was, um, I was 19 and I was in college. And this, this boy that I went to high school with who also went to college with me had outgrown a road bike. And it's funny because I had never even heard of a road bike back then. I didn't really even realize that the geometry and parts that made up a bike would uh, preposition it to be better at certain things than others. Like I hadn't really thought that far about biking. And then uh, more and more, it just became my chosen form of transportation. And so, um, yeah, I think all of those things converged. And I'm also a, a, a very cheap person. Like I don't like spending money. And so the bike just seemed like a natural, a natural option for me for, um, for getting around, traveling cheaply, 
getting exercise, you know, being able to like move my body as part of my transportation and being outside, which I love. I think a lot of people who are part of queer spectrums can identify with this is that you don't have to be anybody outside. I don't have to be anything. There's no expectation about how I'll dress or how I'll carry myself or being ladylike. Like I can climb trees. I can be the strongest and the fastest or, you know, and not have to feel like it's embarrassing. The trees don't care. The grass doesn't care that I'm masculine as human beings. And especially as a big part of white supremacy and uh, white colonizer culture, we separate ourselves from the natural world a lot. And that's one of the ways we do it by saying like, there are these gender, these very strict gender roles and that we have to adhere to them or else it's like uncivilized or something for like women to be walking around with their tops off, which I just don't believe. One of the things I fell in love with about being outside early in life was the ability to be myself and not feel ashamed in the outdoors. Um, that said, human beings are in the outdoors a lot. And so when there's human beings there, I think one of the things that we can do as a group of people is to invite people to be exactly who they are in the outdoors. Um, and part of that is meeting people where they are on the knowledge spectrum. I can say at least for black people as a black person that there's not a whole lot of knowledge about outdoor survival. That's seen one as a, as a, like a leisurely activity um, to be outside, to be like camping and hiking. Um, but it's also in a lot of ways seen as a very white thing partially because it's so leisurely. You have to have the privilege to be able to like not be at work. And then you have to have the brain space to be thinking about that. Beyond that, it takes equipment and the equipment is expensive. So you have to know what equipment to get and then you have to have the money to get it. I can almost guarantee any person, I say this to people you know, a lot and people who are kind of newer to the outdoors, I'm like, you can find your space outside and it will make you happy. We are animals after all. We, uh, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're not because we live in these nice fancy homes with heat. And I love heat. I love the heat. I, I hate being cold. Love a bath, love a coffee maker, all those things. None of them make me less of an animal and none of them mean that I belong outside any less. And so there's a sort of belonging that permeates in outdoor spaces that I love. And I think perpetuating that and carrying that on to the people who need it on and then the, I'll close up this paragraph by saying that we as people of color, and again, especially black folks have not in the United States been able to enjoy the outdoors electively. And by that, I mean, even though we've been outside, we've often been enslaved. We've often been in positions of, of forced servitude. We've often been, you know, sharecroppers or um, there's this term in, in uh, environmental justice that's like uh, basically where we've been in, coerced into working outside in some of the dirtiest conditions. And so that means that I think I, it's colored our, uh, how we identify with the outdoors and how we identify with like being electively outside. Um, and so, yeah, I, wanna, I want us to be able to see the outdoors in a different way and see them as a place that we're invited to be and not a place that we're forced to be and that we have to be in that's an unpleasant place. I love that when I'm riding a bike, I'm powering my own movement and my fuel is the food that I eat. It makes me feel very in harmony with the earth's natural cycles. In so many ways, cycling takes something that could have been wasted, like say wasted energy and turns it into a way to move myself. 
even our bio waste, you know, the earth can use that. So that is just to say that the earth is the original circular economy. Like she don't waste nothing. She don't waste nothing. She uses everything. The other big thing about being on a bike and being in harmony with the land is that I can see the land. I can see and I can smell it. I can hear it. Every part of it is like very on the surface. And that's, I have to say, that's probably the thing I enjoy about biking the most is like being outside being and being in it. When I first started riding, you know, I was living in North Carolina um, and I used to just like ride out into, ride the country roads out into like where all the farms and pastures were. And it was so beautiful. And it's not, I mean, being out there in a car is just not the same. You know, you don't hear as much. I used to think about how riding in an airplane, you know, people often describe the earth as like a patchwork quilt. But when you're on a bike, you see all the cross stitches, you see all the little buttons, you see the engravings, you see the, the patterns in the fabric up close. And I think that is, it's just such a spectacular way to see the earth um, and the world. Uh, the longest bike ride I've done so far was a 550 mile ride from San Francisco to LA back in 2014 as part of the AIDS life cycle ride. And it was my first time seeing the West Coast and I am so glad that I got to experience it that way. Like there's no other way that I would have wanted to see the West Coast for the first time because you just you just see and feel everything. You really do. Um, and then, you know, finally I have, I do have indigenous heritage. I don't know much about it. Like a lot of black people, my kind of understanding of my heritage stops at or just before slavery. So I don't even know like what tribe. I just know that in my family, people are always like, we have indigenous heritage. My great, great grandparents had, uh, were Native American folks. And so it feels a little silly to feel connected to my indigenous heritage because I don't know much about it. But I know that like being outside, being on a bike and beyond that, like the things that we do to exist harmoniously outside, like cooking our food outside, finding food and picking it outside, which goes back into my body in the circular process and I use as fuel on a bike, um, that it just, that feels really close to like my people, whoever they are. It makes me feel close to them because I know they were doing similar things, both black people and, uh, and indigenous people, like living off of the land and, try, and understanding the cycles that the land goes through. Being able to see, I guess, being able to recognize the alignment between our own cycles as human beings and as living things uh, and with, with the land. It kind of reminds me of that concept by James Lovelock from like the 1970s, I think, um, called Gaia, where it's, uh, he draws a parallel between how we as human beings are made up of cells that don't, they aren't necessarily conscious of who we are, right? It's a cell that has a job or has a task. And so in a way, we, our makeup is um, an organized complexity. And then he says that the earth is the same way that we and other living things on the earth are the cells of the earth. And so even though we're having these like interactions with each other and with other uh, members of, of the earth and don't necessarily see ourselves as part of this larger body, we are, and that we are part of the, uh, the organized complexity that makes the earth go on and do the things that, that the earth does. So I really like that idea. And I think it's a big part of what I enjoy about life outside and life on a, on a bike. The first rule I had as a little kid was that we weren't not allowed to litter. That was my mom's first rule for us. And we would get in real life 
real life trouble for like throwing trash on the ground, like, you know? And so for me, that's like super foundational. Um, in urban areas, a lot of times spaces can get trashed. Spaces can, human. we as human beings, we're, we're trashy, right? We're of all the, like we leave behind. You can tell when we've been around. Um, I think one of our big responsibilities is to leave it better than we found it. That's something my mom always used to say. And I remember, I just think about that uh, often. I used to work with homeless youth at the Youth Center on Highland. And one of the things I did there was start this group called Recess. And we would go outside and play like once a week for like two hours. Um, I would always make them pick up their trash. And it was this one kid, I was, he like dropped a bag of, he ate a bag of chips and then dropped the bag on the ground. And I was like, hey, Dre, you got to pick that up. And he's like, oh, are you one of, you one of those people? And I was like, yeah. I am like, we came out here to enjoy the outdoors and I, I saw him understand it. And I, I mean, super, I mean, super nice understanding kid. He like picked it up and like, he was like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Like, but I don't, I think that for a lot of folks, like they're not that relationship with the outdoors and especially the outdoors and urban spaces isn't necessarily clear. We want to preserve spaces. We want these places to be like welcoming and clean. I mean, another thing, uh, obviously acknowledging whose land it is, of all the injustices in the United States, I honestly feel like um, indigenous folks have suffered the, the most. I know, I mean, not that it's a contest, but I think about that a lot. I just think like the disenfranchisement, the very first injustice here in the United States that we know of in modern history is there were entire groups of people living here, right? And it wasn't, this pristine new land that we can have. I, I'm currently studying, I'm in a master's program for urban planning and I'm also studying getting a certificate in real estate development. And I have to say, I have a lot of internal turmoil and a lot of conflict around profiting in any way off of land that is stolen. Like I struggle a lot with that, even more so thinking that like I'm profiting off of land that was stolen from people that I am related to. Like it's just so, the whole kind of complex network of capitalism and property are kind of gross. Oftentimes people, especially in my, in my neck of the, uh, of the field, I'm, I'm concentrating in environmental planning and analysis. And one of the tropes that you hear from people is that, stop destroying the earth. You're gonna destroy the earth. I'm like, we are not gonna destroy the earth. Who the hell do we think we are? This ecosystem has been around for billions of years. She will continue. We might make it so that we can no longer live on the earth, but let's recognize that we are no, we are not near enough powerful enough agents to like destroy, quote unquote, destroy the earth. So any efforts that we make to preserve like this bio wonderland that we're visit visiting should be selfish in nature because have no fear we are not going to destroy the earth she will certainly cleanse herself of us before we get to that point certainly they reach beyond that and they impact like other species and other animals um but yeah we're part of a we're part of a network and we have a limited time here and so for me that feels like a huge it feels very inspiring to do like to enjoy the world and the earth and natural spaces as much as I can, but then in that very same vein to preserve them. I think that we as human beings are determined to go anywhere. And I think that there are some places that we should consider not going, you know, because it's just, it's not for us. And 
that's even a hard concept for me because I am also a very curious person and I'm like constantly feel like there's just like intrinsic search for a place where no one's ever been before. One of the places that comes to mind for me a, a lot around this is the Galapagos Islands. They're being destroyed by tourism and by visitors. And like, on the one hand, I'm like, I would love to visit the Galapagos Islands. But at the same time, I'm like, that is a selfish desire to want to go there. Like, I know that it's beautiful. And I know that it's like, it's like a once in a lifetime kind of, there's nowhere on earth like it. And there's a lot of places like that. But like, could it be, could it be that we shouldn't be going there at all? Like even just having ships pull into the harbor in the Galapagos Islands brings different species of barnacles. And those species of barnacles do not interact well with the barnacles that exist naturally in the Galapagos. And so it throws off the ecosystem. So it's like, I think that there's a whole spectrum of places that we, and this is like, you know, both kind of individual, but also on a broader level, we as human beings, as a species have to sit down and think like, how many more places will we destroy the pristineness of trying to appreciate the pristineness of, you know? Because eventually what we do under any kind of system, not just capitalism, but especially capitalism, is we try to exploit it. I think inviting people to enjoy the outdoors, kind of, you know, to circle back around, like a lot of us live in the, or exist outside in ways that don't feel elective. So inviting people to see the magic of the outdoors and like, I think, again, some of, on an individual level, some of this is like how you grew up and like what your understanding of, of the natural world is and your position in it. Um, but another big part of it is just like not seeing outdoor spaces as white, as white spaces. They, they get whitewashed and, you know, like I said before, there were whole uh, groups of people living here who were not white people. The outdoors are not inherently white. Spending time in the outdoors and wanting to spend time in the outdoors is not inherently white. And I think a lot of times it gets painted that way. Yeah, hi, I'm Kate Boyle. I use she, her pronouns, and I am currently based on the stolen lands of the Eastern Shoshone and Shoshone Bannock, uh, which is also known as the Teton Valley in Idaho. I really believe that for advocates to grow into advocates, that it needs to start with this like heart connection and love for the landscape and all of the landscape, like not just the pretty pieces, like the big vistas and the wildflowers, but all the pieces that make the landscape the way it is, which I think includes like some of the hard facts of human history and some of the hard realities of water in the Southwest or the health of the forests and the future of our forests in a very um, dire situation in 2020 in the, in the West. And so, that connection like starts with an experience of like having an experience where as a human we are either challenged or empowered or connect to ourselves or other people um, through that movement of riding our bikes in that place and then associating that really incredible experience with being a made possible by the landscape and then that next phase i think is take making an effort to get to know the place you know, riding with mindfulness through the landscape can start with just being present on our bikes. Like there, I think there's certainly the gift that a bike can provide and like letting us think and 
kind of let our minds wander, but there's also, I think, great power in it being a moving meditation, you know, like as pedals go around, there's this very rhythmic meditative motion and um, something I've actually been tuning into as I prepare for my first long race effort in just a few days is like using my sit bones as a grounding piece for grounding my body. I think it was like my mind goes through down through my spine and through my pelvis, which is very uh, connected to me and my being right now. Um, and through my sit bones to my saddle, which then is going down through my wheels. And that's like how I'm bringing mindfulness from my brain and my heart and my body onto through the bike to the land. And I mean, that's kind of the point of contact that I also most feel the land. And so then that's the way that I like feel the texture of the earth that we're riding through and kind of try to bring presence into my riding. But then I also think that there's this other kind of more um, intellectual mindfulness of like, how are we thinking about the land? Like, are we thinking of it in what I think is like probably pop mountain bike culture of like shredding and I don't actually think I know the other words, sending. <laughs> or are we thinking of it as like we're moving with it and like the landscape is guiding us really. Like the way the trails or dirt roads or whatever surface we're riding on goes through the landscape, I think dictates the flow and the movement that we have. And so I think the a mindfulness piece is just recognizing that like we aren't dominating anything and I don't want to dominate anything. Like if I'm leaving a negative impact, then I think I've done something wrong. And that includes like everything from kind of our more uh, standard leave no trace mountain bike practices of like not riding in clay soils and leaving massive ruts and trying not to cause braking bumps and even just like trying not to have our the middle parts of our bikes like scratching up and destroying vegetation or rocks or whatever um and so I think the mindfulness piece is like yes we're a traveler on the landscape and our presence is temporary and it's there for this moment in time and I'm not trying to change it I'm trying to move through it and have that gift of that time moving through it without having a negative impact. And then I think another bigger piece of the mindfulness is like, what does it mean for me to be able to be there? And that's me as a self-identified woman, me as a white person, me as a probably middle-class-ish human, um, me, like, and me and all my identities, you know, and what and just having the mindfulness of like this experience I get to have is one that is very comes with a lot of privilege or came through for me a lot with came through privilege and as I think an advocate for the environment and for mountain biking that like I don't want to take that for granted and I want to identify the ways that maybe I had a front row seat and getting into it that can be reduced or minimized so that it is more accessible for those without the access that I've had given my identities. And while it can be hard, you know, the like white fragility or whatever identity fragility we have, it can be hard to sit with that. And that 
is probably a very similar thing of like sitting with the fact that we're riding on stolen land or like who really have been the stewards of this land and what does that look like and how is that different than what my idea of stewardship is and like this is where <laughs> the mindfulness gets a lot more like philosophical and kind of it's some it's an ongoing learning process too I mean it's really sad for me to think about and reflect on like what the amount of work that still has to be done and maybe it's inspiring but to think about like in 12 years of working in the field it wasn't until just a few years ago that doing a like integrating a land acknowledgement into an orientation to a course was even like a uh, encouraged practice and i think that in reality that's still like a pretty fringe thing and i'd love to see that changing and so with that as i've been trying to become more um fluent and conscientious and bringing mindful mindfulness into new spaces and especially when i'm facilitating groups um that has evolved and today i think starting with understanding like well first where whose ancestral land are we stepping onto and the resource that i've been going to most is the website um, native-land.ca um, and i also just downloaded a new app that i've been playing with as well a um called whose land question mark and i've actually enjoyed cross-referencing those because there's you know like i keep finding myself being like where what makes this line like why is it that right here it's one territory and what right here is the other and so i like being able to like compare the two and then the next step in that is ensuring that i understand how to pronounce the name by going to the website or the resource provided by that group so yeah, just trying to undo a little bit of that. And on the landscape scale, like trying to familiarize, familiarize myself with a little bit of the story, like the, ge the geologic and more geographic story of the place and how that has kind of informed what the human history looks like. And then I think a huge part when we talk about humans is not just the past, but like where, what are people doing today? Um, Cause I think it's so easy for people, for some reason for people to step into what are often recreational spaces which are generally less developed spaces and to only be thinking about what used to happen here. And often, unfortunately that's often a huge part of how indigenous people are talked about. And it's a, that is directly contributing to indigenous erasure and so i think a really critical part in bringing people onto landscapes is both identifying what the history involves but also like what the present day looks like um, for the human landscape this is kind of like my learning edge right now really as a um as an advocate for public lands is trying to expand my understanding of what advocating for you know, essentially a protected and healthy future for landscapes is and, and integrating the you know, indigenous perspectives into, into that. And so this is evolving. And hopefully if you were to ask me this again in a year, I'd have a, even a better answer. But right now what that looks like is again, doing my research, not just like, what is this like say we're talking about a uh, kind of land management policy like 
not just what does this mean through my lens as like a white conservationist and where a lot of those values have like are rooted in, but like what, how does this, how would this impact native people? Like how would they perceive this? And this wasn't just speculative, but like going to and doing my homework and like seeing if those group, the groups involved have made any um, statements or have any of their own advocacy around the issue. And so as I proceed in advocating for the protection and health of landscapes through bikepacking routes, I'll be working on finding the indigenous perspectives and also bringing and asking, like seeking them as well, um, bringing their voices to the table as we're drafting um, language around what our stance is and what our actions would be. And this goes with anything. Like there's so much power in us just working on like integrating that as the norm to make it the norm, you know, and that's in the same with um, conducting not conducting to holding land acknowledgements and it's the same to like introducing ourselves with pronouns and it's the same with you know like talking about um what collaborative land management looks like like the things that maybe not everyone is integrating as a standard practice yet like the more we just do it regardless of if people are expecting it or not like the more it will hopefully just become a norm My name is Tez de la Tierra. I use they, them, he, his pronouns. And right now I'm in Ohlone land, Oakland, California. Well, first off, it's just like when you're mindful and you're riding through, like, I don't know if I'm like riding through this land, Ohlone land, and I'm, I'm mindful of my surroundings. I'm being mount of my environment. I'm more aware of what's in front of me. There's like this cadence that happens, right? When you're riding and there's a rhythm in your breathing and you can feel, you can feel everything. And so your senses are pretty open. And so where I come from, you know, being raised in East LA, it's like not too many people are going to be, how you say, like greet you or say hello in the street. It's in the simplest way, human interactions. And I feel like right away when I'm on a bike and I'm mindful and I see people, like there's like this smile that I have and want to share. And riding along the MLK shoreline um, is really, really beautiful experience with bay water and being curious about the water. And it's all these questions come that I probably wouldn't have asked myself really if I was like doing anything else. And going from like I don't know miles and miles down and the, the land sheet like becomes marshland and then you know this is fairly new trails to me specifically the MLK like going further south towards Coyote Hills and just feeling in awe of like the beauty and and sometimes talking to the birds and um, wondering where like how those lands also came to change because to the left is all these like buildings and sometimes golf courses and 
feeling sometimes frustrated and even angry, you know, like what would the, what would this land be like if none of this human capitalism destroyed this area, you know, for human consumption? And I feel like there's a better way that we could have done it. Maybe we is not the right word, but specifically the white urban or colonized developers could have done it. Like, what were they thinking? And just being really fucking frustrated. And like, ah! And then being like, oh, there's a beautiful sun and the birds and the breeze and just trying to balance it all, honestly, um, while being aware of what's happening. And then praying, praying that it, that the land will be resilient. There's a lot of opportunities, like, when you're riding through, when you're riding through a city to see, like, a lot of, Oppress, historically oppressive uh, living conditions, a lot of ha- um, houseless encampments. I mean, if you just pause and if you're just mindful, you could see the needs. If you're into like the city council stuff, you know, you could always do that. Like if you're into that stuff, but like it could be really simple of just like, you see folks hungry, cook some food right if you have money don't uh, even me like I, I you know I'm a poor working class person but I have an abundance still and to just to allow yourself to see the abundance that you have right not just the inequities look what you could do on a weekly basis for me it's cooking like there's so many poor folks way poorer than me you know it's just not okay that folks have to be hungry if you don't have a group of like like food not bombs or whatever start one organize one start organizing i see so much um trash like at these redwood parks and in the bay and in on my freaking on my sidewalk and it's just like just do it just clean it up you know just clean it up taking because a lot of folks, it's not about pointing the finger. Like, you don't, a lot of folks don't understand what it means to have, like, mental health challenges. Or it's hard to even take care of your basic needs. And so some folks, you know, like, go if you're the kind of person that's on, like, immuno, immunocompromised or whatever, go help and clean up an area where some folks are having a hard time cleaning up, you know? And stop asking questions of, like, whose fault or, you know, who pick up yourself from your bootstrap mentality. You could start there. If you're, if you're there, then, you know, okay, well, at least you're being honest. You you could do a lot of good by just challenging your mentality to start there. If you do believe that kind of stuff, that is that like each, each his own kind of a thing. Um, It's that's not the way it is. We are responsible for each other's well-being. Uh, we're responsible for our own well-being, but it's not disconnected from everyone else. I guess it starts with your mentality and learning how to just to decolonize, I guess, in one way, to slow down, be mindful, to that cognitive dissonance, right? Um, that discomfort we feel when we're, when we know, we sense that something's wrong, but it challenges or like, I don't know, just like mentality that, it's no longer serving us, but we want to be stuck in it. That's a good place to start. It's just like kind of pause there and sit in that discomfort. I'm thinking about 500 years ago, this land that I'm walking on and I'm hiking on, 
this all this land was taken care of by my people and there was like a great balance a harmony a culture a language the passing down of, of stories and, and medicines laughter and then all that is not all of it but it, you know a lot of it taken away with violence and I'm walking through their lands. I feel the reason why, you know, you're still standing like the Redwoods is because of the harmonious relationship they had, right? Because if it was maybe 500 years, if it was colonization had 500 years prior to that, so like a thousand years ago, if it was given to like the white settlers, maybe that forest wouldn't have been there. Probably not. My name is Celia Denton. I use the pronoun she or they, and currently I am based on Denina lands in Anchorage, Alaska. When I think about interacting with the outdoors and cycling, a lot of that interest came from myself at a very young age. I lived on um, a reservation called Metlakatla. It's the one and only Indian reservation in Alaska. I'd say I'd, at about like four or five years old, I played outside a lot and rode my bike a lot. And those, in, in those situations, I tended to be alone. Um, I was raised by a single parent, so my mom was working all the time. And my older siblings are um, 10 and 12 years older than me. So they were always at school or doing homework or doing their own jobs. And so the way to self-entertain for me was just kind of like wandering around the woods and picking out plants I've never seen before, or riding my bicycle. My relationship with biking has gone through a lot of shifts and changes. Like sometimes it would just be a means for getting myself to work because I didn't own a car yet. Or um, sometimes it would be for the sole purpose of exercise. So just like being focused on my body rather than the land around me. But uh, this year in particular, each time I've gotten on my bicycle, I, I try to pull back to that mindfulness of the space that I'm in and how I'm moving through it. I, I try to be aware of my surroundings, not only like the plants and the landscape around me, but also the, the people that I'm encountering and who are using the same space as me. More so this year than any other year in the past, I've seen more folks um, using outdoor spaces and biking and running, hiking, whatever, which seems to be a result of the pandemic and wanting to figure out how to do things safely. I guess what I notice in those spaces with the people, and it's kind of hard to ignore, is like how much space certain folks tend to take up and how, how they move through it. Are they moving through it in a way that they're owning the land? Or are they moving through it in a way that they're um, appreciating the land and kind of giving this reciprocity of like, the land is giving us the space to be recreational. So I need to be giving my respect and attentiveness to this. There are a lot of folks I notice who are moving more in um, the first way I explained where it's more of an ownership of land. And I find that kind of interesting. In particular, the way that I've moved through these trails and spaces when I first moved to Anchorage, because I, I didn't grow up here. 
I didn't, uh, the climate here is so much different than the climate I grew up in. The landscape is different, even though it's all within the same space, it's so vast that it, it felt like my eyes and my body were taking in so much at once that I wasn't even being aware of how I was moving through it. So this week I was trying really hard to remember like, how did I move through the land when I first moved here and was it respectful? I kind of feel like it, it wasn't because of how much I was taking in. Even though I am not super hardcore within the bike community, I've participated in some of the bike community's events and I've, I've gone on some rides with people in certain spaces like single track spaces or um, doing certain group rides. And I think that something that is really salient is like this lack of connection or acknowledgement of where we're biking through, what, what these lands mean, what the history of this land is and how to, how to interact with it in a way that's more connected. It tends to just be, in my experience, in these certain events and group rides that I've done, it, it tends to be a more self-centered focus and less connected with not only the land, but even sometimes the people participating in that same group space, which uh, is, is kind of disheartening in some ways. I suppose having more presence of diversity in, in those types of rides is first of all, most important because diverse voices are going to bring different perspectives to the table, right? Like some people might be more rooted in the land. Some people might be from an immigrant perspective, but all of these different perspectives and allowing those voices to be heard through these types of rides, um, I, I think would create a richer and more connected experience within cycling. Some situations I'm thinking about in particular are like, and these are less, this, this is like a less bike group official sort of thing and more just amongst groups of friends, but there would tend to be situations where the biking trails throughout Anchorage are very, like there's a lot of them and it goes, it spans through the whole city, but there's a lot of different routes you can take. And I've been in multiple situations where I feel like I, in my mind, have a good route for the, for the group to be taking to get to wherever we're going, but um, it tended to be dismissed. Like my voice is just made to be smaller and diminished under the voice of someone who might be a white, male, cisgender, heterosexual. Like it, it tends to be that kind of voice that overtakes mine and ultimately gets to decide what's, what's the route that we're taking. In those moments, it's kind of difficult to even speak up for myself because when I think about those groups, the group itself is even following within that realm of de demographic in which I become the minority. So then my voice becomes the minority. It, it just makes it easier to shut out my voice. And then it sort of feels like, do I even belong in this space? Do I belong biking with these people if my, my knowledge of the trails is not being respected or valued as much as this other person's. I, I kind of think about how just inherently outdoor activities um, are sort of rooted in this sense of a doctrine of discovery, like the, the thrill and um, allure for some people to be outside and in these spaces is to quote unquote be where no one's ever been before, or just explore in these places that are 
like, quote unquote, just waiting to be discovered. And it, it's really important to remember that a lot of these spaces that we're upon had been occupied by people before. And when I think about that and try and imagine the people who um, before colonization were occupying these spaces, the, the thing that creates a centering for me in that feeling and that thought is, is just complete awe and admiration. I think particularly for anywhere that's in Alaska because of our climate, because of the space that it is, thinking about folks who were able to steward and move through these lands so adeptly and survive for literally thousands of years, it's just magnificent for me to think about. And that adds kind of a layer of wonder to the whole experience that I'm having outdoors anyway. Like already I'm taking in the landscape and feeling admiration for that, but then there's a layer of admiration for just knowing that people were able to move through it so, so cleverly. I tend to get on my bicycle and ride when when I want to be centering myself. And I guess in that I'm finding joy in medicine in being able to move my body through a space that I, I value and respect. And the wonderful thing I find with cycling versus other modes of um, outdoor activities is that you have much more control of your pace. You, you can move through things really quickly or really slowly. And both of those things have joy within them, right? Like the joy of moving really fast and letting the wind touch your body and feeling that sort of sensory connection or moving slowly so that you can absorb and uh, really take in your surroundings. Um, and obviously that's just inherently like the, the movement of your body uh, links directly within health. I personally try to share that with others is if I'm if I'm feeling like I'm not just going on some sporadic off the cuff ride, I try to plan out sometimes rides with other people. Sometimes those rides will be centered around foraging and then that's another layer of interacting with the land. I've gone on several rides this last spring and summer that have been specifically for being able to share my knowledge of the plants that I've learned or that others have shared with me just allowing other people in my community to learn how to uh, identify and appreciate plant relatives in their space that maybe they hadn't seen before is a way that I try to share that. As a call to challenge that thought of doctrine of discovery and conquering something and overpowering nature, I would challenge people who feel that way to ask themselves why they feel like they need to get that out of their outdoor experience. Where does that feeling come from and why do they feel like they need to partake in some sort of discovery rather than any other approach to interacting with outdoors? 2020 has, uh, impacted my day-to-day -day life in this way that uh, I do kind of feel like I'm forced to slow down with the nature of the pandemic and um, a lot of the uncovered race issues in our country and ever-growing natural disasters that are just showing us how we've been interacting with the earth in the wrong way for too long. It's kind of making me slow down and be more intentional, like 
how am I interacting with people face to face or physically or not physically? How am I speaking to them? How, uh, what, what might they be going through or where are they coming from? And same with the earth, like how am I interacting with the earth and what are my actions doing to impact the way that it exists and how, how is it going to respond in the way that I interact with it? My name's Alejandra Ramon Reyes. I go by Ali or Ramon. My pronouns are she, her, they, them, he, him. I live part-time in Orange County with my father and family. And then I also live in Pasadena, California with my partner. Rio, my partner, inspired me to get into cycling. Um, but also as a child, I always rode a bike. I was inspired by ceremony. Uh, to be outside because all of the Native American ceremonies or, or Mexicayot ceremonies are outdoors. So you have to go out to the mountains, to the rivers, to the waters to, to make those offerings. I went on a bike tour with Rio and a couple of other friends. We were going through certain uh, Native lands and we were definitely making offerings as we went along, uh, tobacco offering to the land to ask permission to ride on and through the land. And then also the places where we were staying overnight, it was just kind of being mindful and honoring the land by like not leaving trash and not leaving a big old imprint that we were there. I think for me, responsibility, I guess as an outdoors person, not just a cyclist, I guess, um, I would say that it's about also um, accessibility to the spaces where we where we go, um, because it's not like I see my the grandma that, that lives in the hood like going to these places, you know, and because it's not accessible to her. So that has to do with class, and that has to do with uh, race and gender because one that abuelita was not raised to believe that she could ride a bike and go anywhere Two, uh it's a classist because she's now been situated in a city or a, a neighborhood where um she can't really have access to just going into her backyard and having trails or or just being able to ride her bike because a lot of pe people will not ride their bike in like a city scenario because they worry that they're going to get run over so now that grandma is, is yeah, she's faced with these things, right? Like, oh, I can't because I'm a woman and I can't because of, of my class. I don't have money to go to these uh, mountain places to ride my bike. So definitely as a person, I guess I could say of privilege to have money or not a lot of money. I'm not a billionaire or anything like that, but I wish. Um, <laughs> Um, but I do have a little more uh, access and a little more education and a little more, um, I guess, gender fluidity to where I am not trapped in, in that belief that I can't go. And even if sometimes I don't have enough money, I'm not afraid to ride the bike in the city. It's like, well, we can die at any time, at any point. It doesn't have to be run over 
on a bicycle, you know, you can die anywhere at any time from a heart attack or whatever. I know that I'm not from the north parts of California. So I know that my mindfulness and land acknowledgements probably are going to be shifted towards every particular peoples or culture that dominate that land. So yeah, if I went to Brazil, yeah, I would definitely have to investigate or figure out who the native people are there and be mindful and probably put, ask permission to lay down some offerings to go on their land and, and, and ride my bike or do whatever I am doing on foot even because that's just the way that I've been taught to do things. I was raised and born in Anaheim, California. So even riding a bike there is very different than riding a bike in, let's say, LA to me. Um, because in, in Anaheim, definitely one, most of the people that are riding bikes are people that are working class and undocumented. Right, which is probably the same as in LA, but then also in LA, you get a little bit more diversity as like people that ride bikes for like recreation. They're not really commuting or they're not going to work at a factory. They're just kind of leisuring and riding their bikes. I guess just recognition uh, that those people become aware that they are definitely in a privileged place to be doing like, I don't know, I've, I've never been to places where it's like a massive cyclist in mountains or anything like that together, but I've seen them. And uh, I think that they're just kind of out there having fun and, and doing their thing, but never does it cross their mind like, oh, these were once inhabited lands of native folks. And we're just like riding through here all rough with our mountain bikes and stuff and going through here like you don't even know what's under there. Um, so I think that we should definitely um, educate each other, them to us and, and us to them as well. Like, hey, friend, did you know that these people dwell here or used to or still do? And we should probably, even if we're not going to make an offering, at least say a little prayer or or, or ask for permission in, in a respectful way, you know, like, hey, we're gonna, hey, ancestors of these lands, we don't know who you are, but we want to just ask for permission that we're gonna, we're gonna come through your land um, and ride our bikes, you know, in a mindful way. As indigenous people, I think that we were also made to believe that we have, it, it's kind of ironic, right? That we're like earth, earth-based or spirit our spirituality is earth-based spirituality right but yet the history has taught us that we don't have a place outdoors right like oh no you're not allowed to go ready no you're not allowed to to go camping you're not allowed to um take a vacation outdoors right and it's like wait well, weren't we native people that lived outdoors so you know i can't go outdoors because i cannot afford it so yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and touch on that again because it's very unjust that historically we are now made to believe that our place is not outdoors when our horse spirituality is based on being outdoors and the earth. For me, definitely it has created more movement in my life, um, especially coming from like a super athletic background um, as like high school and then like a couple, like a year or two after high school. And then I went into like deep drug addiction, right? So then I didn't do any sports for like ever. And then I got slowly back into ceremony and kind of got my life back together again. 
and like ceremony really uh it does focus on spirituality but also there's a lot of physical work that comes with it so kind of exalting my my body in that way and then taking up uh the biking and hiking and all of that stuff also just kind of um took it to a whole other level but also with my family like my kids my kids yeah they they you know I have one that prides herself in in noodle body that's what she calls herself so it's like no you can't be prideful that you're a noodle body you know we have to work you out we have to go outside and we have to move you so I think that's like one positive experience you know she just recently learned how to buy how to ride a bike she is um She's 14 years old. So yeah, I kind of traumatized her trying to ride a bike by pushing her down a hill and expecting her to just kind of catch on. The 10 year old did catch on and she did fine, but the 14 year old did not catch on. And she was just fearful for like the past six years of even trying to attempt to ride a bike until we met Rio and Rio kind of got them on board and she began to ride a bike. So that brings joy to me and my family. <laughs> I'm Matt. I use they and she pronouns. I'm a daughter of Malayali immigrants, a writer, an intensive care nurse, and a bicyclist. And I'm based on Denina land, colonized as Anchorage, Alaska. I'm in this community of travel writers uh, that my teacher Faith Adieli has put together through the Vona community. So Faith Adieli teaches a like maybe the first and maybe still only um, travel writing workshop for people of color. Um, and a lot of what I learned and understand from that workshop and from my work with other folks in that workshop, including Bonnie Amore, who writes about decolonizing travel. What I've really come to understand is that like travel writing is historically part of a colonial project. And that our, our modern understanding of travel and tourism is definitely part of a colonial project. I now think about travel as like, what is my purpose? What is drawing me there? Why, why am I going there? Um, the bike tour across India happened really because my friend Danny said to me like, hey, do you wanna go on a bike ride together? And like, where would you wanna go top five places? And um, I said India, um, India was the first place because my family is from South India, from Kerala. And I didn't have a felt understanding of what it was like to be on the subcontinent. And I look back on it as like almost random, the points that we picked, the places that we went were almost random, but there were very like intuitive reasons that we were going there. And I don't think of that as not a reason. I think that intuition guiding is also a reason for, for me, I think, to have to gain an understanding of the country that my parents are from, the millions of cultures that exist on the Indian subcontinent, the ways in which my being a part of an Indian diaspora in the U.S. really robbed me of that understanding of multiplicity because I, I 
joined this being part of Indian diaspora meant that I was like one thing, you know, like people don't, uh, don't think, don't see me and don't hear my name and think Malayali. Whereas in India, they would immediately hear Malayali. Um, and so I had to gain that nuance being, I had to be in that country. I had to be in Rajasthan in the desert. I had to be in Uttar Pradesh. I had to be in all, I had to be in Kolkata and like meet queers in Kolkata. I had to be in all these places that um, exposed me to the multiplicity that is in the land that I'm from and therefore in my own blood and in my own bone. And so when I say that intuition guided me in that way, I don't mean that is an excuse for white folks to be like, oh, intuition guided me, <laughs> you know? Cause I think that can be extended in this really messy way. So as that caveat, like um, I think there, there needs to be like real soul searching when, they're, when it comes to travel. On a bicycle, it's hard for me to not be mindful. Um, there is that constant rotation, that up and down of the pedals that looking up and down, that being with land, that being with place, that, that witnessing of everything around you, um, that I think requires me to listen so deeply to myself as an extension of the earth, like my body as an extension of what is around me. My body is connected. Um, like I was saying, like I come from a collectivist culture, like I'm not separate. <laughs> you know um and i think bicycling puts me in conversation with the land in a really beautiful way like for example living on denina land like you know like as a settler immigrant um as somebody who's not from here as someone who you know most of the people who i work for my patients their lineages have been here for tens of like a 10,000 years right <laughs> So you, I can't lose sight of the ways in which my existence here is relatively temporary. Um, and being on a bicycle lets me have that conversation and be aware of that. As I communicate with plants, as I like ride past lilac trees in the spring and cottonwoods and like, you know, see the cotton falling on the ground and uh, like witness the fireweed coming up, like uh, like getting to be in conversation with these plants that have also been here for the people who have lived here. Like to speak to this example of India, right? I flew into Ladakh, which is in the state of Kashmir, which is a contested and internationally contested border, which is currently under siege, right? Like the, the Modi government has completely cut off internet access for Kashmir and they haven't had internet access for like over around six months, I wanna say. Um, there, it's an extremely militarized zone and it's Muslim. And so there's a way in which the Modi government, which is a genocidal government that um, he has advocated for genocide against Muslims. You know, he oversaw like a genocidal program in his state when he was the um, in leadership in that state. Uh, sorry, that got, I just went all over the place, but I bicycled across Kashmir. I bicycled across this like a site of extreme um, militarization. It's like one of the most militarized zones in the world. And like witnessed the ways in which Muslim people are being disenfranchised in this really large scale way. 
um, my responsibility is to those people. You know, I cannot ride my bicycle and ignore those, the ways in which people are being disenfranchised. I think of myself as having a really big responsibility to the people and to the land that I travel on. And I think for me, um, I will no longer be traveling to places where I do not feel that sense of responsibility. You know, I'm not gonna be going places just for like a resort vacation. I'm not gonna be, go I'm not gonna be biking places that I don't have a sense of like felt embodied responsibility to and where I'm not connecting to the land and the people of those places. Like a call to action in centering indigenous communities too. This is something I've been thinking about over the last six months more than ever and something I will continue thinking and writing about I think for the rest of my life. Um, but around the ways in which settler colonialism and white supremacy have really robbed those of us living now from the knowledge of like 10,000 years plus of people, like the knowledge that has been communicated to humans by the earth, right? Like we know this, we know that humans and plants and animals have spoken before. We know that that's how like people have survived. And we know that to this day that there are certain people in certain communities who can still speak to the world that in settler colonialism we call nature, right? <laughs> so these are things we know have been robbed. What collective trauma does it create when so many of those messages have been destroyed and so many of those languages have been lost is something I think about all the time. I think for me, a big part of my responsibility to Indigenous communities relates to listening and uplifting Indigenous voices, which means like spending a lot of time reading, listening to podcasts, um, listening to, to and advocating for my patients at an Indigenous-run hospital. And it also means, as Robin Wall Kimmer says in Braiding Sweetgrass, it means like becoming Indigenous to place. It means like Listen, living in relationship to the land as though I care about it, <laughs> you know, as though my survival depends on the earth, moving closer to every day, giving as much to the earth as the earth gives to me, which is like a project that we will never finish. I will never be able to give the earth everything that it gives to me. But like every day I can try to cultivate that relationship and make it a little bit more reciprocal. Thanks for joining us for part three of the Within and Without podcast series. Music for this episode is by the band Your Heart Breaks and our logo design is by Molly Sugar. This episode was sponsored by our friends at Ride With GPS because great rides should leave you feeling inspired, not lost. Ride with GPS is here to keep you on track for all your bike adventures with the world's best route planning software, offline maps that allow you to navigate from anywhere, and a platform where you can connect with friends to share rides, photos, and stories from the road. All of it available on the web or with their mobile app. Ride with GPS wants everyone to go on better rides more often. Learn more at ridewithgps.com.